we can have our kids head downstairs. Some good stuff for you today with Miss Kiki. That's a good song. I think we'll sing that in heaven. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that none of us like to talk about. We're talking about dealing with the elephant in the room. And you know what the elephant in the room for all of our lives is? is sin. And uh, it's, it's the one thing that uh, keeps us from the Lord. And um, keeps us from His presence. Keeps us from enjoying who He is. Enjoying His fellowship. Uh, if you wanted to turn in your Bible to... 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's a story you might be acquainted with, it's the story of David with Bathsheba. And in our culture today, you know, in church, we we don't call sin, sin, we call it problems, setbacks, whatever, mistakes, Um, but it's sin, and uh, Jesus died for it. And we're going to read this chapter, and, and what's interesting about this particular story is we see kind of the whole thing develop and you know sometimes you notice sin but you don't know how it develops and you don't know where it comes from or whatever but this one really gives a a big snapshot of the moments that David was uh was going through and uh why don't we start in verse one in the springtime when the kings go off to war David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel art army And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. He came to her and he slept with her. And then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, and how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. And David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, why why have you just come for a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. And he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David the full account to the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbeshia? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? 
Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, to say to him, wherever your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent uh, him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came against us in, uh, in the open, but we drove them back at the entrance of the city gate. And then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Wherever your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But then, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Pretty crazy story there. And the impact of, of sin in this moment was David was supposed to be off at war, as all kings would be at that time. He was bored and doing his own thing. He became comfortable where he was at in life and, and started to make decision after decision at there. One moment he's looking at a woman on lust, and the next moment he's sleeping with her, and the next moment he's having her husband murdered. I mean, you know, that's pretty, pretty crazy how, when, how sin gets tight wound in our lives. And it's no different today, is it? No different. No different in our lives and the situations we faced. And all of us have felt the effects and pain of sin and, and what it does to us. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve and their first original sin. All of that happening and now it gets tight wound. And Christ steps in in our lives today and saying that he has, a, has a, a way out, so to speak, from this sin. James 1, 13 through 15, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about Sin, And I love what the Message Bible says in James 1, 13 through 15. Don't let anyone under pressure to give in to evil say, God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Sin. And sin grows up to adulthood and it becomes a real killer. You know, for all of us today, we can talk about Christian faith, and yeah, I, don't, I don't want us to focus so much on what we've been saved from. God saved you from hell, death, hell, and, but Jesus came to die for sinners. And do we have any people in here that were sinners before in your life here? Okay. That's about everyone in here. So Christ died for us. And see, the doctrine of our faith in Christianity is this, is that we were all dead in trespasses and sins. We were born in sin. So when I came out of my mom's womb, I was an ugly mess. Not just outside, but inside, I was going to be in need of a Savior. Because one day I would recognize the sin in my life and in my heart that I needed Christ. Amen. Obedience is key in our faith. It can't just be, I asked Jesus Christ into my heart. It can't just be that. To obey is better to sacrifice. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes. He says, it's very interesting how people try to give God something other than what he asks for. The Lord says, my son, give me your heart. And they give him ceremonies. He asks for obedience. And they give him man-made religion. Charles Spurgeon goes on to write, finding joy in yielding ourselves as servants of the Lord. He said, oh, for, or for obedience. It has been supposed that many badly instructed people that the doctrine of the justification by faith is opposed to the teaching of good works or obedience. There is no truth in that supposition. 
We who believe in justification by faith teach the obedience of faith. Faith is the fountain, the foundation, and the foster of obedience. Men do not obey God until they believe in Him. We preach faith so that men may be brought to obedience. To disbelieve is to disobey. One of the first signs of practical obedience is found in the obedience of the mind, the understanding in the heart. And this is expressed in believing the teachings of Christ, trusting His work, and resting in His salvation. Beloved, we do not give secondary place to obedience, as some suppose. We look on the obedience of the heart to the will of God as salvation. We regard sanctification or obedience as the great purpose for which the Savior died. He shed His blood so that He might cleanse us from dead works and purify Him a people unto Himself. See, there's a lot of stuff in there about what Charles Spurgeon is talking about. And what we need to understand today is sin does still matter to God. Got to get an amen there. Sin still does matter to God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by the things that we do. Our disobedience today, we must understand, you know, I can tell my wife, you know, this whole marriage thing with God, I can say to my wife all day that I love her, but if my actions don't show that I love her, what good is that love? I can say all day long that I have a relationship with Christ, but Christ himself said, if you love me, you would obey my commands. So we can't separate faith in Christ from obedience. And what David decided to do is he got comfortable in his relationship with God. He got comfortable in his place as king. And he decided to sit around and he was at the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. And many times in our life we blame God for the problems that we have, don't we? Say, God tempted me in this. God did that. Don't say God tempted you. God doesn't tempt you. The devil tempts you. You know when Christ was out in the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights there, he used the very word of God to fight against what the enemy would have to throw at him. You know one thing that we're called, and we forget this, is that we're called saints. Turn to someone and say, you are a saint. Romans 1.7 says it like this, that we're holy people. And in the Greek, the word holy people means saints. And it's amazing how when we go through life and we understand that sin is a very deceptive thing and the practice of it. Have you ever noticed the reaction that the world gives to Christians who are found in sin? Have you ever noticed that the world doesn't give any... any like if, if, if a Christian falls in sin, there is a huge seismic reaction. But if someone who is not a Christian falls in sin, it's kind of no big deal. they got a problem and they're working it out. Let's give them a free pass. You know, one, one part of me gets upset with that, but the other part of me says, well, wait a minute, aren't Christians called to a higher standard in the first place? We're the ones preaching this stuff. So to whom much is given, much is required. We are held to a different standard, and we are held to a different account. In fact, the Bible teaches like this, that fathers... Our, our parents, if you mislead your children or misguide your children, it's better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the middle of the sea. So our very lives and the example and the obedience and the patterns that we live in our life are so important. And folks, let me get this straight with all of us today as far as our love and our patterns with Christ. I want to obey God because I love God. Amen. The reason we obey is not out of a slave 
mindset. He said, you're not slaves, you're friends. I want to go after Christ. I long to do things that would bring honor to him and give him uh, joy and pleasure. We are called to live differently, and we're called to act differently. And you know one thing that's for sure with our Christian faith, and it's not popular anymore, but we're supposed to walk uncomfortably on planet Earth. Do you know that? You say, what do you mean by uncomfortably? We're, we're not supposed to just go along with what's going on in the world today. I don't know if we just need a clearing wake-up call as far as our life is. Turn real quick to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. First Peter 1, chapter 1. First Peter 1, 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Be just as he who called you is holy. So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here and reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. When we come to Christ, the Bible says that we're supposed to live holy as he's holy. So with David and that elephant in the room in our lives and the problems that we're facing, it's one thing to understand that we go into a relationship with God knowing that we live in fear and a reverence to him. Let me ask you this. Have you grown too familiar with God and got into a comfortable faith where things have become common to you? Maybe there's some sins and situations going on in your life. Maybe there's some attitudes. Maybe there's some things that you've said to some people. Maybe the way you're living, maybe the way you're acting, whatever you're doing. Have you maybe checked that down and asked the Lord? The Bible says it like this. We take uh, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So every thought we have, you say, well, looking back now, looking back and dissecting the whole David incident there, the elephant in the room. David, in that moment, right when he walks out and is on the rooftop. Now, I don't know how bats work back then, but didn't that bother you? He's out on the roof and all of a sudden... I don't know what it was. I mean, didn't they have shower curtains or something back then? But for David's sake, right there in that moment, he should have fleed temptation. You know, Joseph was presented with stuff. You know what Joseph did in the Old Testament? Joseph ran the other direction. For some of us in our life, what we do with sin is we entertain it, we host it. In some ways, we celebrate it and figure out it's somehow going to go away on its own. Folks, I'm going to tell you, by osmosis, you cannot rid yourself of the problems of life. You're going to have to flee temptation. You're going to have to run from it. Here's what we say. You're going to have to start running from it. You're going to have to start changing some patterns. You're going to have to start making some lifestyle choices. Maybe there's some mental things going on in your mind. You're going to have to start taking those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. One of the things that we're due, we're slow to deal with trespasses and sins, aren't we? We log excuse after excuse. We wait and we wonder aimlessly, knowing full well what we should do, but our selfish pride gets in the way, doesn't it? 
We wait. Charles Spurgeon writes this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Continued delay of duty is a, a continuance of sin. If I do not obey the divine command, I sin. And every moment that I continue in that condition, I repeat the sin. This is a serious matter. If a certain act is my duty at this hour and I leave it undone, I have sinned. Folks, I want to tell you today, if God has spoken to your life, if your conscience is seared, if there's something unsettling, has anybody ever felt guilty before? You felt bad about something? Do you know that's a God-given conscience in you? You know you can't rest, you're turning, whatever it is. It might be just something you're dealing with. Whatever it is, and you're turning and you're tossing in your soul, you're at work, you're, whatever's going on. And do you know that's a God-given thing to make you a little bit uncomfortable so that you will deal with that problem and you will deal with it now. Don't deal with it later. Turn to someone and say, don't deal with it later. Don't have to worry about mapping it out. Don't worry about the next step and the next step after that. Don't create excuses for why you continue to do what you're doing. Take responsibility for your own soul. I cannot police another person's soul. I don't have enough power and energy to do that. In my life, I must be a person who allows God to speak to me and take responsibility for my own actions. David neglected his duty. He should have been off to war with his fellow soldiers, and Uriah knew that. Charles Spurgeon goes on to write, Neglect of a standing command must grow grievous if it's persisted on for years to the extent that the conscience becomes callous on the subject. The guilt becomes even more provoking to the Lord in proportion. To refuse to do what is right is a great evil. However, it is far worse to continue in that refusal until the conscience grows numb to the matter. We say, how could someone do this? How could David... Be in a place. How could David be the type of person to where he defeated Goliath? You know, we think about in our own lives that, man, we think about the past things that we did, those great things, and we kind of live in the fog of that situation. How could David go from killing Goliath to now killing Uriah in cold blood? You know, I think our hearts grow callous, don't they? Are there any areas in your life that have grown cold and callous, giving excuses to certain behaviors and mindsets about people and situations? Are you giving yourself excuses? You know, we judge people by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intentions, right? I've said that before. We judge people by what they do. Well, they didn't do this right, they didn't do that right. But then we judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, I intended to. Why well, planned to? Not only has David sinned, now he's so calloused in his heart that he's covering it up. And then after it's done, he marries the girl and goes on his merry way. And what we do from sin to sin, in situation to situation, and it doesn't matter, folks, time. We think time heals all wounds, but time doesn't heal wounds, does it? How many have had wounds in your life and that you didn't deal with that are sins or offenses, and you say, I never dealt with that properly, so you're constantly running from it, you're constantly covering it, you're constantly avoiding this, and you're constantly avoiding that, to the point now where you've created so many problems and so many cover-ups, 
You don't even know what end is up anymore. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, we are people of today. Our way of living and thinking is not the Christian way. Thus we have settled for a double self-deception about our lives that allows us to live a certain degree of peace. One deception is in thinking what has happened and what we have done in the past has sunk into the dark depths of oblivion that as long as we and others have more or less forgotten about it, it will stay forgotten. In other words, we live in the belief that forgetting is the ultimate and strongest power. Eternity means oblivion. The other deception under which we live is that we think we can decide between what is hidden and what is revealed, between what is secret and what is public. Isn't that the pure definition of a hypocrite, right? We live one way here, and we define the terms of what is kept secret, and we define the terms of what stays underneath the rug, so to speak, and we'll bring out the parts and components and pieces. But how many of you know, no matter what you do with sin, sin is sin and is really, really, really ugly? How could people do such things? How could people get to such places? You know, we think about the killer in Vegas and what he did, and we say, this guy's quick. They're trying to figure out why he would do such a thing. We're trying to map out. He doesn't fit the picture. And I always say, you know what? You know why the earth is the way it is? It's because we live in a fallen world. Why does God allow pain in situations? The pain and problem started with Adam and Eve. The pain and problem happened in the garden when they opened wide the gate and sin gave birth to problems and now it's transposed and it's given down to their kids and now you have Cain and Abel in that whole situation. And it goes on and on and on and on. How could people do such things? I remember in high school we were in Bible class and we watched an interview with Ted Bundy, the mass killer and actually, it was James Dobson who went under the Lord in prison, I think. And James Dobson was interviewing him, and you know, he said where all of his problems started? I think it actually started for him with JCPenney catalogs looking at girls. I say, what? See, we think we can manage sin. We think we can manage problems. We think we can kind of pretty things up. And you know what the Bible tells us about our own very hearts? That our hearts are desperately wicked. And we might not murder someone. You say, well, I'd never do that. But you have murder in your heart. We might not do something to someone, but you're thinking all these thoughts about that person which are desperately wicked. So I would never do that. Be careful about sin. Turn to and say, be careful be careful. Peter declares this. I would never deny you, God. I would never deny you, Jesus. I would never do it. Peter, before that rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. The other deception, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, is under which we live, is that we think we can decide between what is hidden and what is revealed between what is secret and what is public. Time to meet the enemy. Time to deal with the elephant in the room. You know, my dad's told me before we've had big projects at work and stuff, and we deal with things. He said, Steve, I always love this. My favorite 
quote of the day for you guys, for me, and you, is that you know how you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. I love that, because the idea of the bigness of things in life, you just kind of go at it. And you know what? You say, well, Steve, where do I start? I've got this mess over here in my life, and this mess over here in my life, and I've created these problems myself. And that's good. You've at least admitted the problems that you got. But you know what God will do? God will give you the grace to take care of that situation and appropriating the blood for that situation and start redeeming that past in that situation. It's time to deal with the elephant in the room and the elephant's us. Turn to someone and say, the elephant's me. Time passes. We think it goes away. It's not going away. I want us to understand the mercy and the compassion and the love that God has for everyone in dealing with sins in an individual's life. 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Do you know what God's goal in life is? He wants everyone to repent of their sins. That should really get you excited. You say, what's God's plan for planet Earth? For every person to repent. And come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not to pass a better budget. Or not to get this law taken care of. Or not make sure that this group is handled. He wants everyone to repent. I pray this for our leaders. I pray this for our church. That God, we are called by your name. And God, we repent of our sins so that you will hear from heaven. And you'll heal our land. I want believers to repent again. I don't want believers saying whose problem is what. Or where the problem came from, I don't care. You know, it's kind of like parents of your kids, you look at the mess and stuff, and you all the problems you did. I don't care who did what, just fix it, get it going. It doesn't matter anymore. You know, because when it all starts blending together, it really doesn't matter. Christ needs to come in and save. And that's the most important thing. The most important thing we'll ever know about Christ is that He is a loving Savior. And you know why Christ hasn't come back yet? He's wanting one more to come to the kingdom. You want to know why he's so patient with all the problems? Because he wants that person to come back to him. You think about how patient he was with David. Think about if you or I with God. How many would have just went like this to David and just went... We all play God, right? We know what we want to do with people in situations, and we know what they deserve. Do you know what we deserve? We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. That's what I deserve. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve God's goodness. I don't deserve God's mercy. Folks, you don't deserve God's mercy. You never can and never will. And so the beautiful story of grace here is that he says this, No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now let's turn here and see about this loving God and what he speaks in this moment. Now we have the prophet Nathan. Everyone say, watch out for prophets. So the sin has been swept under the rug. The king has taken care of the business and the responsibilities of it and goes on his merry way. Nathan rebukes David 
And I want you to know that as a father rebukes his children, a loving God's going to discipline his children. And God comes in his voice through the prophet Nathan, and now he's speaking directly through Nathan to correct his son David and saying, David, listen, and let's start here in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came, he said, There was two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, and he had brought. He raised it, he grew it up with him and his children, shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to a rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one he had come to. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Do you see how we get religious there? He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you master's house to you and your master's wives in your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, The Lord has taken your sin. You are not going to die, but because of your, but you doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born, you will die. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child, and he fasted and spent nights in living in sackcloth on the ground. And the elders of the household stood beside him to give him, get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with him. On the seventh day, the child died, and David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when he spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. He said, is this child dead? And he asked, yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went into his house at his request. They served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fastened and wept, but now the child is dead, and you get up and eat. And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fastened and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now flip real forward real quick to Psalm chapter 51. I want you to get a really big understanding here because all of us deal with this. We must understand the gravity of sin. Psalm 51, holding your thumb there, one of the most beautiful psalms that are written about restoration 
and about repentance and forgiveness, I want you today to think about some of your gravest sins, some of the situations that you've hidden, some of the problems that maybe even you've created that you can never change and go back and fix and make right. And I want you to take a good long look at Father God, the Savior of the world, and think for a moment right now that Christ came to forgive you of the worst of the worst offenses in your life. I want you to think for a moment that He loves you before you love Him. I want you to think for a moment that when you were in debt and trespasses and sins, that Christ came for you. I love what the prophet says when Nathan calls out David in the sin, and God reveals to Nathan the whole picture. Is that he says to David this, he says, David, another translation said, God has forgiven you. He didn't say he's going to forgive you. He didn't say, well, we'll see how this works out. He said, you are forgiven. David's eyes were open. And he realized what had happened. I think the only thing that can happen in our lives is not praying harder. It's not going to church more. God has to reveal to us what's going on in our lives. Today you might have failed, but you are not a failure. Many of us think that we can't get up and that we can't start again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this statement, Isn't God greater than our sin? I mean, isn't the cross greater than every sin and setback there is in the world? Isn't God greater than your sin? So what we do is we live under condemnation and guilt. Now, for days, David fasted. He prayed. He fasted. He didn't eat. He laid in sackcloth. He was mourning. And you heard the motive of his heart. He said, maybe God will be gracious and do something different with this. But he understood that God's discipline was present there. And that he understood that God's plan was bigger than anything he can think of. And he understood that even the judgment of God was right. And that through that, God would work in it. But David, for seven days, prayed in sackcloth and ashes. And you know, on that seventh day, when he found out that his son died, he rose up, got out from underneath that fog, and he realized, you know what, it's time to move ahead. Psalm 51 Let's read this real quick. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassions. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice where I bring it. You do not take pleasure in birth offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Lord. You will not despise. 
One of the things, understanding who God is and that he's greater than our sins, is this one thing, that we come before God humbly in a contrite heart, a broken, a broken spirit. When we come to God and ask him to forgive us, please don't do this. Yes, God, forgive me of this, but realize that this person did these four things, and now God, if you could just deal with those things, because I'm cleaning my mess. You can't go to God this way. Because what happens if that person never does get cleaned up? What are you going to do? What if they never fix it? But God is greater than your sin. And God is greater than your setback. And God is greater than your problem. And the thing of it is, when we come to God, as we say, this is a really big one, God. I don't know if you can handle it, but I'm going to hold it for you. Let, let me see if this can work, God. Let's just see if this works. God says, come to me with a humble and contrite heart and see if I'm not greater than that sin. See if I won't do great things. Let me tell you this. Let God grow strong in you once again to give you confidence that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because of the cross, you and I are delivered and freed from the bondage of sin. I want you to say this out loud really, really big, because some of us don't quite believe it right now. Say this, ready? I don't, I'm going to give it to you, and then you're going to repeat it. God is greater than my sin. You have to believe that. Discover the power of this statement that you can overcome the sin, and that you will be an overcomer for Christ and with Christ. When you sin, do me a favor also. Recognize immediately what you've done. And go to the throne room of grace immediately. You say, how do I go to the throne room of grace? Well, if God's talking to you in your car, there's been many times where I go, I'm in the car driving, and immediately I'll just start going, Lord, will you forgive me for this? Forgive me for the guy that just drove next to me and I wanted to kill him, Lord? Does anybody ever know that? No. None of us in here. Forgive me, God. You're going into the throne room of grace when you do that. Go into the throne room of grace, Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne room of the throne of grace. So what that tells me is no matter what sin I'm dealing with, it means that no matter what the problem is, that I as a believer in Jesus Christ can go into the throne room of grace and plead with God, and I can have live fearlessly and confidently knowing that God forgives me of every past, present, and future sin going on in Steve's life. Isn't that pretty cool? That's pretty amazing. That I have always had the opportunity to go to the throne of grace. You know, the idea is that we sin less as we get mature in the Lord. And that we, we grow and grow. But 1 John 1, 8, I know we're throwing a lot of scripture, but I want to grab some good doctrine here. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. I love this verse because it's really practical for all of us. 1 John 1, 1, 8 and 9. says this, if we claim to be without sin, we just deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we've claimed we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus didn't die for people with problems, he died for sinners. Amen. He didn't die for people who needed just some quick fixing he needed people that desperately needed a Savior. And this whole doctrine of sin is so important to Christian faith. 
Because if we just blot out sin and say, well, I don't have sin going on in my life, I just have this, and I'm just becoming a better version of me, then what on earth do we need the Cal- cross of Calvary anymore for? What do we need a resurrected Savior for? David didn't just say to himself, well, I made this mess, I've made this elephant, I've got to do something about the elephant. Tomorrow, by the way, I want you to understand this when you're looking at the Savior in your life. Tomorrow is not dependent on yesterday in your life. David could have sulked for years and years and years. And he could have lived under condemnation and guilt. I mean, at what point do you kind of realize that God's forgiven me and I just got to keep moving forward ahead? And I believe that's part of the hardest part in our life and our walk when we're dealing with sin is getting out from underneath the stain of the guilt. I love what David says. He said, blot out my transgressions and sin. So David's in a situation now where he breaks free of all the guilt and all the condemnation and receives the grace of God in that moment. And it's so beautiful. David prayed. He fasted and mourned. He got up. Turn to someone and say, it's time to get up. Isn't it so beautiful when you see someone with a, a crazy testimony of what God freed them from? Do you know when God frees them from something, they're just out of the gate fast. They're moving. It's like, you can catch up with me. God's freed me, and I'm, I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. You think of the great sinners of the Christian faith. Isn't this Bible so refreshing because it's real people in here? Think about what Paul had to deal with. We worship at the altar of Paul, don't we? Paul's good man. Good. Paul's good man. Good man. Paul murdered people! Saul, can you imagine, just put yourself in the context of a believer in that day. And Saul, who's the first terrorist, if you will, religious zeal is killing people. He's the first ISIS. We glaze over it. And we beautify Paul. He was a scary dude. And now he's come to Christ. And he's preaching the gospel. Coming to my church. Can you imagine the first year? And we're all sitting down. Everyone's talking. Should we have Paul in our church? I wonder. I don't know if I show up. <laughs> what if he's got some intention? He's got some secret guys out there waiting. See, Paul, he could have lived under the guilt. And you know what Paul learned? One of the most profound, beautiful verses in the New Testament is he said, I know one thing that I forget the past. I know one thing I forget the past. I met a guy when me and Ted were in jail ministry, pastor of my faith center, Pastor Bird, a man of faith, loves the Lord. And here this guy murdered this guy. He was on death row. And now he's the leader of that jail ministry. He's spoke with his testimony, understanding, like, this guy killed someone with a butt of a gun. And now, he's free. See, what we do, is we might not do like what many of the Catholics do in this penance, and paying penance, and trying to work out from underneath it, and work out from underneath it, but in our mind, we're living in guilt, and we're living in shame, and we're living in doubt that God can free me! Is God greater than my sin? And the question
Because if tomorrow is contingent on yesterday, then none of us have a future. If my yesterday and the problems that I face and the things that I go through and the mental exercises, if it's all contingent on yesterday, then I can't even look forward to tomorrow. Dear Christians today, I pray that you would be instilled with a zeal. Zeal. I have had real vocabulary issues today. That you would be instilled with a zeal today of understanding that God's grace is sufficient for your sin. That you have a future. I hate it when we talk about stuff. You're like, well, Pastor, I guess we're just all just sinners. No, we're not. We're saints now. We might sin, but we're saints. Turn to someone who can say, I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm a saint. I know you don't like that in your head because you want to keep talking down about yourself. But we have to get the spirit like a Paul and we have to get the spirit like a David. At some point we have to get out from underneath the cloud and we have to get out so that we can receive the grace of God so that we can face tomorrow and a new opportunity for us. Forget about the past. Let me give you a little bit of reassurance prophetically and in scripture what God does for you, by the way. Two scriptures... Hebrews 8.12 says, God remembers your sin no more. Done. Forget. I don't understand how a God of the universe, the God of the universe who created me and knows me, knows everything about me, forgets my sin. He remembers it no more. So what we do is we have talking points for God in our prayer, and we go through things, and we keep praying about stuff. At what point do you stop praying about stuff? Say, well, I'm just supposed to always be praying. No, you're not. Because some of the stuff you're praying about is past stuff. Some of the stuff you're dealing with is still the same dialogue from stuff four years ago. So don't pray about it anymore. You've given it to God, and now you have to live in the freedom of grace of saying, God, it's your responsibility now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop praying about it, please. Turn to her and say, stop praying about it. Stop talking about it. Stop just soaking in it. No more soaking in it. No more talking about it. And we do it because we feel bad for ourselves. And we do it because we feel like we owe God something. And we do it because we have a poor self-image of ourselves and the kingdom of God, and we have a view of ourselves like a sinner as opposed to a saint. You will never inherit the blessings of God as long as you stay down here with sackcloth and ashes all day of your life. You can't live there. You know, the Bible says for us to put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And if you're living under heavy circumstances of sin and guilt and bondage, I'm telling you that there is a new garment that you can apply yourself to. It's very difficult because we're acquainted with this sackcloth and ashes, but we're not acquainted with this garment here because this makes us feel more religiously acceptable. But this makes me feel like, well, what am I in pride? We start questioning this. No, you can have joy today for what Jesus did on the cross for your sin that you're dealing with. 
Don't talk to yourself or God about the junk anymore because he's already forgot about it. He forgot. Another verse of scripture says this, that he sends our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Isn't that a beautiful reminder? That when we confess our sins to God, I don't know what he does to them, but he definitely doesn't catalog them. This is no Santa Claus seeing who's done right or who's done wrong. Oh, 14 years ago you did this. No, that's under the blood of Jesus Christ. Joyce Meyer wrote this. Beating yourself up over your sins and mistakes of the past will keep you from believing God for your future. Guilt is an energy draining. It weakens us and literally draws us back to some bad behavior we want to be free from. Isn't that so true? Folks, why don't we close our eyes for a moment. Sandra, if you want to come up here. I hope we learn from David today the effect of sin and sin that goes undealt with. And I pray that we would make haste today in realizing no matter what the sin that that sin is left open, wide open a doorway for the enemy to come in and reside. But just as that happens, the same power of the word of the Lord that would speak to you in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this convicting power right now, would allow you to leave yesterday and enter into your tomorrow. And the loving Savior is patient with you and I because He longs to see us repent. And He longs to have relationship. And He loves you. And so today out of obedience, we say, maybe I broke God's heart in this. You come to God with boldness and you receive from the grace of God that He has for you. And as David entered into that place, And giving us that psalm of blot out that iniquity, make me white as snow. And restoring unto me the joy of my salvation. Today, this is a clarion call for all of us believers today that we can come to God in repentance. And if there are some things you feel guilt over that you've brushed under the rug, you know what those are. There's a difference between guilt and condemnation. You know you're guilty of some things, whatever it may be. And you say, you know what, I'm coming to Christ to give him this. There are no contingencies. I'm laying open with a humble and contrite heart, saying, God, deal with this area of my life. That's for you today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe God is speaking to you. You thought the area was a small area, minuscule, not a big problem. And God is highlighting that and saying, no, that... That's a problem because it's separating me from you and a great relationship we can be having. God is as close as the mention of his name. And he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Let him be that friend. Today, if that's you, and there's the elephant in the room, so to speak, in your heart. God's dealing with that. And you realize that God is bigger than that sin. Bigger than that past. 
Why don't you raise your hand and I want to pray with you today so you can have freedom. If there's anyone in here, you say, you know what, there's an elephant in my room and I want to deal with it. Thank you. Why don't we all pray this together? Dear Jesus, thank you for the gift of repentance. Thank you, Father, today that even though I sin, there is forgiveness. And there is redemption for my life. And thank you, God, that you do forgive me from all the past. And that I have a bright future. And I have a new tomorrow. Not maybe, but for sure. Thank you, God, for your love for me and your patience with my life. I'm going to trust your plans. I'm going to trust your decisions. I allow you to make my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, enjoy repentance this week. Don't just use it on Sunday. Enjoy repentance this week when you're in your car and at work. Enjoy the ability to receive forgiveness from God as God starts to show you, draw you closer to Him. I love you very, very much. Have a good, good week. Amen.